Welcome to the Whistleblower Newsroom. I'm Christina Bordeson. It started with musician Neil Young announcing he was pulling his music off of Spotify because he said powerhouse podcaster Joe Rogan was disseminating, quote, fake information about vaccines, close quote, via interviews with doctors like Robert Malone, who invented the mRNA technology on which COVID vaccines are based, and Dr. Peter McCullough, a cardiologist who has treated many COVID patients with a successful early treatment protocol that he developed. Both doctors have been blowing the whistle on suppression of successful early treatment protocols, as well as other official narratives related to COVID and COVID vaccines. Other celebrities on Spotify, including Prince Harry and his wife, Meghan, joined Neil Young in expressing concern about the dissemination of COVID misinformation. Rogan has an audience of 11 million listeners, more than any major TV network by a wide margin. So the question is, is Rogan really spreading disinformation or is he bringing suppressed factual information to his huge audience to the consternation of those touting or believing official narratives about COVID and COVID vaccines? Dr. Peter McCullough is here today to talk about his interview with Rogan and the fallout from it, including several articles purporting to fact check what he said on Rogan's show. Welcome, Peter. Well, thanks for having me. Now, you did that interview back in December, correct? Yeah, I did the, the interview December 8th, and it's important to understand the context and the planning. You know, Rogan had reached out to me a month earlier. And I told him, you know, I'm busy. If, you know, I have a lot of uh, patient care issues and, you know, all of my uh, research and work I do as an editor. So we arranged a date about a month in the future. And uh, <clears throat> when I came down, I had actually pre-sent him uh, my slides and my figures of all the published uh, peer-reviewed data, including papers that I've published in the peer-reviewed literature. And so the base slide file that I used has uh, well over 100 slides. You know, that's been continuing medical education approved. That's CME approved. Uh, I gave, it was the base file that I used for the Association of American Physician and Surgeons uh, closing um, presentation at their annual scientific meeting. Uh, so these were grand rounds CME approved slides as a base that I showed with Joe Rogan. So it was basically medical grand rounds. I didn't, uh, I didn't speculate beyond the, the range of the data in any way. And I'm really glad that people uh, listened to every hour of it. There were fact checkers and other people. Uh, in, in fact, um, one of the fact checkers said, well, uh, Dr. McCullough said about the origins of the virus. And, and I, I responded to that. I said, I was very specific about that. I said, I referred the listeners to the nonfiction work by Peter Bregan. It's called COVID-19 and the Global Predators. We are the prey. I wrote the introduction for that book. I know that book well. So what I did is I referred the listeners to cited published information. And so for those who have said uh, that, that there's some debate on the information, what I've said is, listen, let's, let's, let's bring it forward and let's talk about uh, the data that were cited. There seem to be certain certain things that you said that really um, upset people or the fact checkers made them go crazy. And I just wanted to go over some of these with you to hear what you have to say. And I assume that part of what you're always going to say is you have sourced virtually everything that came out of your mouth 
when you were talking uh, to Joe Rogan. Yeah, yeah, and let me just say before you get into it, I've see, I've done a couple of these responses to the fact checkers. The uh, every single fact checker uh, has not sourced their claim. So the fact checkers have not sourced their claim, and and trying to reference the CDC, the NIH, or WHO is not a source. That's not uh, if, in a court of law. Why do you law, say that? In a court of law, that wouldn't be judicial notice. Judicial notice means that we accept it as fact, and we don't do that with any of the agencies because it's such a rapidly moving uh, pandemic. The data are coming in too fast. And so I've given commentary on national TV, Christina, where I, I've said, listen, the, the, it's clear the agencies cannot keep up with the rapidity of the data. That's the reason why the independent consultants and independent media uh, specialists are so important. The data is just too fast. With almost any claim, the CDC is is instantly out of date. You know, if they if they said, uh, you know, that cloth masks worked and then, you know, months later they say they don't. It's It's just it's the contemporary nature of of how this is rapidly evolving. So there's no statement that someone can take as, uh, as, as what we would say judicial notice. The, the biggest thing that I've heard back is that I gave the interview on December 8th. And uh, at that time point, we had data with uh, the wild type alpha, beta and delta uh, variants that people basically don't get repeated infections over and over again. December 10th, the news broke that the Omicron uh, variant had broken through natural immunity. And so people have said, well, you said you can't get it twice. And I said, well, you can now because Omicron broke through natural immunity. I, matter of fact, I got on national TV and said that as soon as it became known. And so, how do you think that happened? How, what is it about that variant? that, that It's just so mutated that it's avoided the natural immunity. And it largely stays in the nose. It replicates about 70 times faster than, than Delta. It's largely just a nasal infection. It's hard for the body to to, um, you know, to contain it. So it's like any other head cold now. So it's really not, it's not as deadly as, as Delta was. And, and uh, is it, is it, does it still call for a vaccine? Uh, like an Omicron? No, no. And again, I'll, my comments will be just like I did with Rogan in a paper by Abdullah and colleagues from Africa. They reported the inpatient mortality rate early in the Omicron experience when, when they you know, had yet to figure it out, uh, the inpatient mortality was 1%. Uh, and that's a far cry from the inpatient mortality with uh, mixed Delta and, and Alpha infections in the IV network published in a paper by 1040 in JAMA for US experience, the mortality rates between five and 10% for all inpatients, 30% for those in the ICU. So you can see how I'm quoting the data, I'm sourcing the data in every statement I made, and that's exactly what I did with Rogan. So my comments are for Neil Young or anyone else is, which piece of information do they want to talk about? Jen Saki mentioned this. And uh, for example, with myocarditis, there are over 200 papers in the peer-reviewed literature. So if we want to talk about just matter of let's pull the papers and we'll talk about them. There's over a thousand published papers now on vaccine injuries. So, so there doesn't, there's no speculation here. We can just pull the information and review it. This is one of the problematic aspects too. Um, Neil Young, Prince Harry and Meghan, um, all the other people who have, you know, stood up and pulled, you know, pulled out of Spotify or talked about the, mis you know, that Meghan and Harry have a $25 million deal there with Spotify. I don't think they're gonna pull out of it but they did express their concern. 
anyway, these are not physicians. These are not researchers. They are, they don't, they don't even play doctors on TV. And, but they have a huge platform, uh, a huge audience. And when they say something, their audience believes them. That's what, that's what you're up against. You can't go to them directly. They're not calling you to their homes to say, you know what, uh, Dr. McCullough, what you have said has shocked me. It sounds like a bunch of lies because that's not what I've been uh, hearing. Well, listen, I, I don't know what they've been hearing, but they, they, they just, this sounds like this is sounds like uh, when someone heard something they don't like to hear. So, so if the FDA has warnings saying the vaccines cause myocarditis, and there's 200 papers showing uh, and describing how the vaccines cause myocarditis, and I say the vaccines cause myocarditis, and I give the number of myocarditis cases, they may not like to hear that, but that is basically the source of the information. How so, many cases are there? We have over 20,000 cases of myocarditis and pericarditis verified by the CDC. We have over 200 peer-reviewed papers on the topic. They may not like to hear that, right? I mean, they may not like, to, they may say, well, I don't like to hear that. And I'm sorry, I don't like to hear it either. I don't like to report it. The relationships were basically this. Joe Rogan was the interviewer. He didn't express any opinions. I was the person being interviewed. I was giving the scientific data and giving the sources of the scientific data. And I had slides and I can tell you, Spotify never asked for the slides. Spotify, if they have doctors or medical reviewers, they never asked for the slides. Did you, did you offer them to Spotify? I, I, they, I sent them to Joe Rogan's producers with individual figures that we could show up on the screen and they, and they have them. Spotify, to my knowledge, never contacted Joe Rogan for the Source I mean, of you realize how influential uh, you and Dr. Malone are that you basically triggered this whole response, not just from these celebrities, but even Spotify. I mean, when Neil Young first said, I'm pulling out, everybody was like, well, ho-hum, you know, Neil Young, yeah, he, his, he doesn't have the audience by any stretch that that Rogan does. And, and Listen, if there are millions of dollars at stake, you'd think Spotify, if they're a well-run business, they'd pick up the phone and give me a call and say, listen, we want to talk to you about you know, what was said. Where, where's the information from? There was no phone call from Spotify. That, that should tell you something. Well, that's the interesting thing is that what Spotify did, if you look, they, they wrote up a, um, they wrote up this, paper talking about, yes, we see there's been a concern and so on and so forth. So now we're setting up this COVID hub of information. And when you go to that, what is it? It's a, a, a bunch of interviews with people who are uh, pro-mask, uh, pro-vax for everybody or whatever. I mean, I, I went and looked, I went and looked at it and, it, and it's the, the usual sources you know, BBC, Politico, the usual. But, but but in your judgment, Christina, is it fair balanced information? Well, I, here's here's why I'm 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 having you on here right now. It's because it's not about being fair and balanced, or or you know, on the one hand, on the other. It's 
what is true? And if you say something, what's backing it up? Is it expertise that's backing it up? Is it a bunch of studies done, peer-reviewed studies done by experts, scientists, people who, who aren't bought off? I mean, let's face it, there have been uh, some of these medical journals uh, like Lancet, we know what they did for hydroxychloroquine. You know, they, they put out a, you know, they put out a fraudulent study so that well, they could get rid of hydroxychloroquine. Well, I presented the data uh, in a fair, balanced way, which uh, ex an external uh, continuing medical education accreditation body agreed with. Uh, that's as good as we can do as doctors. When I showed uh, Rogan, I think what got the audience, if you ask me, is when I showed Rogan the benefit of the vaccines in terms of the best studies demonstrating um, uh, reductions in mortality, et cetera. He, he looked at it, and I think what got the audience, he goes, well, that's not a very big benefit. And that was kind of just, just his reaction. And I think the gut reaction of people listening was the same. When I showed him the data that the vaccines don't stop transmission, people listening were saying, gosh, you know, we're getting, we took the vaccines and we're getting sick anyway. I just think that the people resonated with his reactions. Um, no one no one contested the data that I presented. And you know, I'm glad people listened to every hour of it. And some people just didn't listen carefully enough. Like, so for instance, there was a, a junior doctor uh, from out in California, University of California, San Francisco. And he said, well, the, 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 the number of 45,000 deaths after the vaccine, Dr. McCullough should have you know, quoted a study. And he wasn't listening carefully because I quoted the uh, the CMS uh, whistle whistleblower lawsuit against the uh, against the United States government filed by Tom Rents, where uh, it was the CMS whistleblower who generated that forty five thousand number. Uh, that's um, you Tell know the audience CMS so Center for Medicare Medicare Services. So CMS is another source of data where they know when someone is vaccinated and they know when someone died, and so by extrapolate extrapolation. By early summer, the death number was uh, in the lawsuit. I mean, that's that's public record. That number is forty-five thousand. And the paper I did quote uh, was Pantazakos and Seligman from Columbia University. It's in the preprint server now. They estimate from census data and from vaccine administration data that the real number could be as high as one hundred and eighty-seven thousand. So I was pinpoint on those citations. The point is. You know, we can argue about a big, unacceptable number and how big and unacceptable it is, but these numbers are awful. I mean, you wouldn't want to argue a 45,000 number or, an, or a 187,000 number or what the VAR system says at 21,000. You wouldn't want to argue any of those numbers. I made the point that, listen, 50 deaths with any product is off the market. It's gone. It's unacceptable. So some of these fact checkers about fact checking a, a, a really big, terrible number is is I think looking pretty bad for the fact checkers if they're trying to if they're trying to minimize this. I think it's worse than that. I don't I don't even think they're trying to minimize it. They're they're just trying to say it, it works. First of all, the the one thing that I'm constantly struck by I'm constantly struck by the continuing ignoring of early treatment protocol. It, not even saying it doesn't work, just ignoring it like it doesn't exist. 
Okay. And I noticed these fact checkers, I, they don't really talk about that. You know, they, that, they never bring that up, the early treatment protocol, which to my mind is one of the, the most important things to know. Well, it's important to report, for instance, um, hospitalization. There's two bad outcomes, hospitalization and death. And we constantly hear a stratification according to vaccine status. And what I've said is, listen, the vaccines are obviously not treatment. Everyone would understand a vaccine doesn't treat the problem. So what you'd really want to know is of those hospitalized, who received early treatment and who didn't, because that's the therapeutic opportunity. You know, if there are uh, uh, pockets of people or communities or neighborhoods where people are being hospitalized and they're not getting early treatment, that's the opportunity. Um, I had a conversation. Has that, been, has that been, have studies been done on that? There's only one paper that reported on that in the first year of the pandemic. And the, the first author's last name is Ning, N-N-G, from New Jersey. And the answer was only 7% of people received any form of early treatment. Back then, it was a primarily hydroxychloroquine. But the important point is, if they received some early treatment before the hospital, they had a much lower mortality rate. Uh, but all the other papers I reviewed, 201, the, the people hospitalized are not receiving any early treatment. And all the people receiving early treatment, they're not in the hospital. So they're two separate groups of individuals. I mean, there's large numbers of people have received early treatment now. I mean, if anything, oh, Americans, yeah. Americans have learned. I mean, the word on the street is they know these drugs work. And so every day when my clinical practice is a scramble for people to get early treatment, but they're obviously not ending up in the hospital. So I've made the point, I gave a presentation for doctors in uh, Amarillo, Texas, and uh, it was a bunch of doctors and it was very scholarly. Again, the same base set of slides that I've been using kind of building over time. And there was one doctor in the audience who was wearing uh, a mask kind of on the side of the room. He was kind of brooding a bit. And then once we got to the questions and answers, he, he said, well, I want to tell you, I'm the public health director here in Amarillo. And, you know, I'm here to tell you uh, that 85% of people in the hospital have been unvaccinated. And I said, I said the same standard thing. I said, listen, the vaccines aren't treatment. I said, as the public health director, you're also responsible for the monoclonal antibody program. And with the monoclonal antibodies, we have randomized trials that show up to 85% reductions in hospitalization and death with the monoclonal antibodies. What percent of your hospitalized patients in Amarillo are getting the monoclonal antibodies? And then his answer is, well, I don't know that. You see, it's a problem of people not knowing the right information. So a public health it's director- It's not just that they, they don't know the right information. They're not even seeking it. It's like they, they're fed. They're fed right. information. But, but, but you know, he's running two programs. He's running a vaccine program and a monoclonal antibody program. The monoclonal antibody program is designed to reduce hospitalization. The vaccines, remember the vaccines are not indicated to reduce hospitalization. The randomization, uh, randomized trials showed no reductions in hospitalization. Randomized trials showed no reductions in mortality. The vaccines are strictly indicated to try to reduce the incidence of getting the upper respiratory tract infection of COVID-19. That's all they're indicated for. And so you can see how as a public health director, he's way out of sorts. He's trying to relate hospitalizations to vaccine status, they're not indicated for yeah, that. But you can do that without a vaccine. You can you can deal with the upper respiratory 
I, I know, but I'm just saying, I'm saying strictly what is for what. You can see how he's not relating what the various um, interventions are. The vaccines are indicated to reduce the binary occurrence of COVID-19. Uh, the early treatment is designed, and I've published this, it's designed specifically to reduce the risk of hospitalization and death. And three, three papers, Proctor, uh, Zelenko, and Rialt have all shown that drugs in combination reduce hospitalization death. Individually, we've got some great results. So Terivimab, the GlaxoSmithKline product, 85% reduction in hospitalization and death. The Pfizer product, Paxlovid, over 80% reductions in hospitalization and death. The Merck product, 30% reduction. So I can go on and on. And as I went over the data with you, as I am with Joe Rogan, uh, I, I, you know, it was largely his response to it. So what we learned from the Rogan interview is that it did have more views and downloads and, and, um, and, and, and reverberations than any interview he's ever done in history. And, then, and since the blowback, it's even gotten more uh, attention. The next in line is uh, the one done by Robert Malone. Now, Dr. Malone's not a treating doctor, uh, so he doesn't, he doesn't you know, see and examine patients. He hasn't seen vaccine uh, uh, and, and you know, been involved in the clinical decision-making on vaccines or managing injuries. So I have the kind of the greater breadth of knowledge. And I have, um, Dr. Malone has about a hundred publications. I have 650. So, you know, I came in as uh, in a sense, the authority that Rogan uh, was going to get in COVID-19. Uh, he had, you know, he had already been off the heels of he himself received the McCullough protocol, right? So he received the monoclonal antibodies, the drugs in combination. He was, uh, he was belittled about receiving ivermectin. So he invited CNN correspondent Sanjay Gupta on his show and really schooled Sanjay Gupta about the data on ivermectin. He had been in communication with Aaron Rodgers and Aaron had been in communication with me. Aaron also received the McCullough protocol. Aaron uh, decided not to take the vaccine and avoid you know, chances of getting heart injury or other damage from the vaccine. He got COVID, he got through it just fine. And so we, you know, we had a fair discussion of all of these and then Joe and I had communication afterwards, but never once did Spotify say, uh, you know, let's see a copy of your slides or we'll have our independent doctors, you know, review data with you. And, you know, how can we how can we get square on this? Spotify did the usual. I mean, it's better than than Twitter and YouTube where they just yank yank you off. You can't you're, you can't get on there. But Spotify basically did on the one hand, on the other hand, which is not. It's not legitimate either because it doesn't it just because somebody has a differing opinion, if it's not backed up. And as you said, like some I, I want to go through some of these, quote, fact checking things. Let, let me just say the fact checkers, health impact news and the fact checkers. Oh, yeah. They, yeah, they've been fact checked themselves. So uh, Dan O'Connor at Trial Site News fact check the fact checkers. Uh, and he found them uh, to a one to be 100% fallacious. Uh, they don't cite their claims. They're making false claims. Uh, and then within a few clicks, they uh, every single one of them traces back to one of the vaccine stakeholders. Oh, uh, that's interesting. Really? Yeah. So it, it's not it, it, it's not a terribly who does, who does uh, health feedback. Uh, yeah, it's health feedback, health impact news. Uh, they all trace back to Dan O'Connor at Trial Site News has really exposed that. Another thing I noticed is they don't call you out on facts and figures and statistics 
on the vaccines and on early treatment protocol. I mean, this one, this one starts out with you saying, claiming that the pandemic was, was uh, planned and that uh, COVID-19 vaccines are experimental and that they're not experimental, which I've never, I've never heard that. I mean, I'm, they're emergency use authorized. That's, that's well, well, if the fact checker wanted to have a conversation about that, I'd say, listen, uh, you know, I referred to the book, Peter Bregan, COVID-19 and the Global Predators, We Are the Prey. So the foundations of how the pandemic was planned are in that book. It's a book of nonfiction. It has a thousand citations. I'm not an expert on pandemic planning, but you know, I refer to that book. I wrote one of the introductions for the book. I'm, I'm very transparent about that. You know, I'm not claiming uh, opinions on how it was planned, but Dr. Bregan is. And I think right. that's 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 fair enough. Um, well, I, I, he's gathered a lot of evidence to show, and and yeah. you and you and Joe, because I I listened to your your podcast with Joe, and I and I have to say, like he he asked questions. He really didn't opine much. He didn't opine. I mean, I went to one source that the Bregan uh, book is used, and that was the Johns Hopkins planning seminar. Yeah. And, the, and it's called the Spars Pandemic. And we went through that document. That's a, you know, an, an, an 80 page plus document that's been on the Johns Hopkins website. Uh, they actually, they published two peer reviewed papers from that planning document where they went over the planning of the pandemic. And it was gonna be a coronavirus. It's gonna be related to MERS and SARS. That occurred in, in, well, in, in this one, they they sliced and diced and said, "Oh well, it wasn't a it wasn't a seminar. It was a training, something or other." I mean, they you know sort of. Yeah, but it's a they published their proceedings. Uh, you know, I showed that to to Joe Rogan. So I, I think a lot of this is just you know I I think it's just um, it's just a relatively um, uh, impotent uh, baseless. Uh, counterclaim. It's, it's basically just friction that they're trying to create out there. They probably have been paid and been told, listen, why don't you go through McCullough's interview? And why don't you find as many little things as you can and put something out there so there can be some counterclaims? Um, but, it, uh, you know, yeah, the, but the this happens. Do you understand the reason the reason why we're even doing this today is because there's the pushback is always very, very significant, the larger the audience for your information, the greater the pushback. And at this point, you've experienced it over and over and over again. But Christina, I've never had a direct resistance to anything. I've never had someone email me say, I, you know, I'm, I, I qualified in my field and I strongly disagree with you on this. Never. And ne why never. do you think that is? Uh, well, you know, I, I have to tell you, you, you know, the, the, it has been encouraged. Senator Johnson just had a Senate panel on Monday, January 24th. He had dozens of experts, not just me. I was I co-moderated. I did my part. I set the framework for the meeting. But we had dozens of experts on early treatment, dozens on public health and vaccine safety. We had nurses, uh, lawyers, patients. He invited every public health official who could be related in a government capacity, other experts, you know, I think the invitation list was dozens and dozens of people. No one showed up, Christina. No one showed up to even listen, let alone have a conversation. Who would you like to see show up? 
I think I'd like to see somebody show up who, who thinks they're responsible for things. You know, n- no one really I seems to, to be responsible. You, you know, I just, if, 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 you know, if we could know who in the FDA and the CDC is responsible for the vaccine program, it'd be wonderful for them to show up. N- nobody knows. Nobody knows. They are the named sponsors of the vaccine program. No one knows who's actually leading the program. That is odd, isn't it? Isn't it? Doesn't that tell you something? Doesn't that tell you something? Um, uh, You know, if there is someone at the National Institutes of Health uh, or the Infectious Disease Society of America who is responsible for early treatment of COVID-19 as an outpatient, it'd be wonderful for them to show up. Nobody knows who they are. Well, maybe they're not responsible because there, there is no early treatment protocol well, well listen yeah. well listen if there's a void that's wonderful if there's a void then we filled it they should come listen to see how we filled the void yeah but why haven't they that's the question you have all your statistics dj raul i mean he uh, you know months ago he he'd already treated the fourteen thousand patients very convincing you know all the points are either in the peer-reviewed literature in the preprint server system, which we all agree we have to use since the publication process is so, so slow, or we do it by personal communication, recorded personal communication. I mean, I had a recorded personal communication with Didier Rialt, and I've read his studies. I had a recorded personal conversation with Bruce Patterson, who's done all the work about retention of the spike protein in the body, and I've read his studies. I mean, it can't be any more factual and precise than this. And so every single Thing. There's nothing beyond the range of, there were no opinions. And there was actually no misinformation. There was no information. It was simply the data. And then people can determine on their own. And I think uh, those who, who make a claim that they didn't like what they heard and they're going to do something else, you know, that's kind of their choice. But, but we, sooner or later, we will have to engage in a dialogue. Someone who really thinks the vaccines are safe and, and efficacious will have to come into a discussion where someone has concerns about safety and efficacy. That, that interface is going to have to happen at some point in time. You can see where we are. I mean, there are people marching on Washington. There's truckers shutting down Canada. Sooner or later, there's going to have, somebody who thinks the vaccines are safe and efficacious are going to have to come out and make the point. Yeah, you know, I find it really strange that, uh, first of all, that Trudeau, of course, you know, fled... <laughs> fled the capital because of this trucking business. And now it's like they're preparing a police response, it seems like. So it feels like um, a digging in is going on there. In in Germany, things are uh, really bad for for people. In Australia, it's been bad. And it, it all seems to be progressing along the same lines in all these states and yet in all these countries. And, and yet, you know, nobody in the leadership positions who are in charge of determining if we wear masks, if we have lockdowns, if we have to be that. And, and of course the unvaccinated now in this country, Peter, I can, I can tell you uh, they're like the pariahs of of all pariahs. I gave a public program in uh, Wichita, Kansas, 
recently, and we had a, a private doctors meeting, which was actually interesting. I met with all the doctors in the community, and and one of the questions that came up is, what percent of people do you think took the vaccine because they thought it was good for them, that it was a, a good health decision, and what percent do you think were forced into it against their will? And the and the roundabout guesstimate that in that meeting was fifty fifty. Oh, so. Yeah. So you can imagine if, if there's 50% of people who took the vaccine and they're getting COVID anyway, and they're seeing the complications and fatal and non-fatal, you can imagine how furious people are. The, the furious people may not be those who never took the vaccine. It may be those who took the vaccine and feel like they were duped. I guess my question to you, for someone in your position you're seeing how things have been, you've seen how things have been unfolding. You're at the forefront of trying to get this information out and basically trying to get national, if not international policy changed. And, and yet what, what you're seeing is it, it just seems to be, and you tell me if, if I'm misinterpreting this, there seems to be a doubling down in a sense. I see heterogeneity. So let me give you an example. So uh, in, in the, I was just in Washington, D.C. I spoke on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and press tent. And, and, um, and then you know, in, in the District of Columbia, we couldn't even go into a coffee shop and get a cup of coffee without showing a vaccine card. But yet if we went just a, a mile or two over in Virginia, we stayed in Pentagon City, we could go into restaurants, no masks, no vaccines, nothing. Uh, you could go to uh, Austria where things are you know, in a draconian state of, of lockdown, but then you can go to the United Kingdom and they've given up on all the mandates and, uh, and masks and go back to work. And the same thing in Scotland and Ireland. Um, in the United States, uh, go to Dallas, Texas, where I am, everything's open. There's no masks, lockdowns. People are just you know, working as usual. Uh, then you go somewhere else. I was in Manhattan and someone asked me for my vaccine card to I go up an elevator in one of the, the buildings. So I guess what I'm telling you is I see heterogeneity and it's obviously the same disease. It's the same people. It's the same region. What's different is what's in the minds of people. That's what's different. It's actually the mental part of this illness, not the biological viral part of the illness. It's not just that, though. It's it's the rules that are being imposed by local government. New York City, you can't you can't walk into a restaurant without having a mask and showing your vet and you cannot sit down if you don't have a vaccine card. So I, I guess my question is, how do you, how do you get to the next step? I mean, 11 million people and more have seen, have seen you. There's some kind, some kind of watershed moment seems to have occurred. I think you're right. Rogan was a big impact. I think the median age of his viewership is 24. Yeah, it's, it's actually quite young. Uh, you know, I, I'm a frequent contributor to Fox News on uh, Laura Ingram, Ingram Angle. The viewership there is small. I think it's, you know, a million, maybe two million. But, but I think the average age is much older, too. And I, I think that's the difference. Young people that I know in my circles, they actually don't subscribe to cable TV. They actually don't have any cable TV channels. They get things through all these different sources. And I, I never realized how big podcasting was. And so people are jogging or driving and they're listening. And so Rogan, uh, who's a very intelligent man, and he's actually a very good journalist, he has perfected the art of the podcast. And he does that deep dive. It's three hours. I mean, he, he literally 
you know, walked me in his office to the restroom. He goes, you better go to the restroom because we're going to be in there for three hours. And it, it was, I mean, I, I said, listen, I better plug in my computer because we're going to go over the data. And, um, and he was very respectful. Uh, he, yes, he was. Um, it was very respectful. People say he didn't say as much as he normally does because, you know, I had a lot to say as I told him the story of early treatment and then moved into vaccine safety and efficacy. It was a full, and, and what he heard was no different than what I told Tucker Carlson. Tucker, I was on his long program on Tucker Carlson today back in May. What Joe Rogan heard is, is nothing different than what Americans hear in the big public programs. I've given big public programs in Jackson and Chicago and Salt Lake and in Wichita and Bartlesville and uh, Tampa uh, and in San Diego, all over the country. People come out for the big programs and they're, they're 90 minutes to two hours. It's a lot well, of day. Have you day. ever tried to reach out to Fauci? to Biden, to, to, you know, the COVID task force? Yeah, I sent messages off. I think my role as an external person would be the White House task force. I sent off external messages, you know, letting them know, listen, I, you know, I'm working on COVID and, uh, you know, here's my, my scholarship here. No response. None at all? None. How about other doctors who are in your, you said you, you said on uh, Joe Rogan's show that you are a group of 500 doctors now? There's about 500 treating doctors listed in the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. And you know, one of them is George Fareed. George has treated thousands of patients. He used to work at the, the National Institutes of Health in virology. Uh, he um, you know, is a very senior physician. And uh, there has been no contact. There, there actually hasn't even been any recognition that uh, the treating doctors exist. I, I've never seen any recognition of the AAPS or the American Frontline Doctors or the Frontline Critical Care Consortium. I mean, th these, are, these, are, think, these are treatment groups. Do you think that that's calculated? I mean, do you think they know you're out there and they don't want to have anything to do with you? You know, I talked to Scott Atlas. I had a real eye-opening dinner with him. I was tell, in call. Tell the audience who Scott Atlas is. Scott Atlas is a is a is at the Hoover Institute. He is an expert in public health. He's a former uh, neurosurgeon, but he's an expert in public health. He's at Stanford Hoover Institute. He was on the uh, White House task force under President Trump, so he worked with these people every day. And I did ask that question. I said. I said, you know, do, do they know uh, that we treat COVID-19? Do we know? And, and his opinion, and it's actually in his book. Again, I won't, you know, I won't say anything outside of what's published. It's in his book. He thinks they're incompetent. He thinks they're grossly incompetent. They actually don't know. Uh, and what Scott told me, he goes, I was showing up to the meetings with all the data. I had the analyses because they showed up with nothing. They showed up. Tell you something with about this incompetence defense. I call it a defense now. I've heard. I've heard the same thing from whistleblowers in the FBI. They say, oh, no, things, certain things didn't happen because they let them happen. Uh, it's incompetent. I'm not buying the incompetence thing because, first of all, if you are in a position of responsibility to be taking care of the country's health when it comes to this pandemic, you better be the most curious person on earth earth trying to figure out who's doing what and who's doing it successfully. It makes no sense. And if, and if you are in a meeting 
where you're there with your studies and your papers and they come with nothing, then it's your job to put those studies and papers in their hands and say, here, read this, go do your homework, reach out to these people and let's get a policy that actually saves people's lives. Well, I agree with what you're saying. So what I agree. Did he say, I, oh, they're incompetent. Well, what about what? What did you? Yeah, he, he he felt that they're incompetent. It's in his book. He feels they're incompetent. He feels like they did have, you know, good intentions for the country, uh, but they had uh, what he thought was predecided talking points on what was going to happen. Well, who and, who predecided those? I mean, that's just. That's Scott's impression. He just says that, you know, when they came into meetings, he thought that in a sense, everything was already set in terms of Scott was, Scott was, well, I mean, Scott was working on the issue of masks and lockdowns. I mean, I'll just say this much before COVID, you know, I, I work with the FDA. Um, I had one of the first FDA new drug applications. I work with the NIH. I've been on longstanding committees uh, for the NIH, I've, I've uh, testified. Um, they don't represent our best and our brightest, Christina. They, they don't. I mean, compared to the private sector, they're relatively low paid compared to the private sector. Um, you, you know, we uh, many of them are not board certified or even licensable to be treating physicians. Um, you know, they're, they're government employees and they, they serve a role. But again, they, they service us. The National Institute of Health is supposed to service us because they provide government funding for research. The FDA services us because they're supposed to be the drug safety watchdog, and they adjudicate advertising claims for, um, for drugs. And the CDC serves us because they do outbreak investigations, but, but no one looks to them. Uh, they're not a treating body. You wouldn't look to the FDA and say, well, how do I treat COVID? No, FDA. But they should look to treating bodies for answers. No, what they should do is call experts. And I mentioned this in the Senate testimony. When we have a big problem in medicine, in my field, cardiology, we have what's called a Bethesda conference. We meet in Bethesda because they're there. And we have FDA, CDC, NIH. We have uh, practitioners. And, and those from academics and big pharma and device. And there's typically an agenda. Uh, the NIH and CDC and FDA, they pretty much sit and listen. And, uh, and we go over it. That was, it's actually very similar to what Senator Johnson held. Senator Johnson held what really was expert presentation and they should have been there to listen and they weren't. And, and Johnson in the meeting minutes exposed this. It's on his website about who was not there. When you were saying that when there's a problem, you have the CDC, NIH, and so on come forward, it, in the past, they show up, but on this issue, they don't show up? Is that what you're saying? That's exactly right. In the past, they show up. And, uh, you know, for instance, I, I'll never forget that I do a lot of work in heart and kidney disease. And the National Kidney uh, Association, National Kidney Foundation, and I believe the Heart Failure Society of America, there was a meeting and it was either conjoined or separately, but we had an FDA. We actually had the, one of the FDA heads of the cardiorenal division, someone who I know. And we had a great presentation and then a discussion and debate, which is common in my field, about uh, uh, off-label use of drugs. I'll never forget it because I you know, provide a lot of commentary. This is before COVID. And there was agreement in the room, FDA practitioners, academicians, that we should use drugs off-label, that, that when, when a drug is brought forward for its initial advertising uh, claims, it, that, the, that can't anticipate what's, what it's going to be used for years later. 
right? So the people who brought ivermectin forward could never have known it would be useful for COVID. So of course, ivermectin will never be indicated for COVID because the advertising claims, which set the indications, are done uh, years uh, beforehand. But the point of that meeting was we all agreed that the package label should be contemporary with respect to safety. So, so doctors use drugs off-label and on-label, but we should all agree on safety, FDA, practitioners, et cetera. So that was a very useful meeting. So we've always interacted with one another. What's happened with COVID is I think part of it has been this whole issue that we can't meet. So do you remember one of the, the, the congressmen? Is, is, well, well, listen, through the pandemic, do you, I remember several times it was either one of the senators or, or congressmen was grilling our head of the CDC and was asking her, when are you going to be back in the office? When, is, when are people going to show up and start interacting again in the office? And, and she, you know, there wasn't an answer about are they back in the office or not. I think, Christina, if you're asking me, I think because people are not meeting and we're not interacting in the usual human way that we do in academic medicine, that that's a big part of what's going on. <clears throat> people have been battling by email and by WebEx, and it's completely different. In the Senate panel, uh, on two occasions, I remember Dr. Risch and Dr. Malone disagreed on some point of, uh, on the spike protein. And then separately, Dr. Malone and Dr. Wiseman, who is a former J&J &J scientist, they disagreed on genetic or something. In fact, Malone and Wiseman disagreed enough where they got up and they had to hold a little sidebar conversation to get straight on it. And I, I was uh, sitting next to Johnson and I pulled his sleeve and I said, listen, this is normal. This is exactly what should happen. We get together and we, we, we exchange information and, and we disagree, but then we come to agreement. This is a normal part of medicine. This should happen on all aspects of the pandemic response. We should see teams of doctors who bring together different ideas and then we, we come forward and we help lead the nation out of the pandemic. But I find this absence, and I don't think it's, you know, the isolation that explains it because people can get on Zoom and so on. I find this absence very strange. I, I, and, and the only thing that explains it to me, and you know, you may say this is my, my overworked reptilian brain or whatever is, these people are probably looking at, at what has unfolded and gone, oh my God, we have screwed up so badly. We have, we have really uh, facilitated a lot of deaths. Let's, you know, to be kind, I won't say, you know, I won't imply possible murders. Uh, you know, that's a huge burden or a huge blame to accept or recognize, you know? You know that, that, that may be a, a big part of it um, that Maybe at this point in time, there is some recognition of malfeasance, uh, that word's been used, and, um, and that people want to basically stay disconnected from it. Uh, you can imagine if, if someone did show up in the room and, uh, you know, there, there was, and some people were quite, a, quite emo emotional. I mean, Pierre Corey was very emotional. He, he you know, he's, he's fought this for two years now. There were... There was, you know, nurses who worked on the front line. They took care of patients. They exposed themselves to COVID. They got COVID 
And then they were fired later on because they couldn't take the vaccine. I mean, you could imagine the emotion in the room. And then what, wait, then somebody who was a stakeholder uh, for this process was there. You can imagine that the potentially charged nature um, and it, it could have been intimidating for them. But we don't want to create such an I don't want to create such an intimidating environment that, you know, if, if that if Spotify wants to have one of their doctors talk to me that we just talk and pick up the but phone and you see, okay well you Spotify know is in a weird position a joint state we could have issued a joint statement together you know i congratulate spotify and their due diligence on on scientific integrity and you know we could have you could have really taken the high road on this uh, if um, neil young, you know if neil young yeah, wanted right. to talk about it he could have gained some knowledge about covid i mean we can really make this a good thing spotify what is it it's, it's a platform basically for music and for podcasts. And so he's just created this platform and people are putting their stuff on it and, you know, nothing. And he's made billions. And so I don't think it ever occurred to him that this was something that was ever going to happen. And well, so here, you know, that's the reason why I kept saying Spotify doctors. So, of course, I know Spotify doesn't have doctors. What we're really getting down to is a critical discussion. Is Spotify and YouTube and Facebook and Twitter, are they common carriers? Are they just basically ways of information to flow? Or are they curators in some way? And, you know, early on, the BBC, when they announced the Trusted News Initiative, they basically said they were going to be curators, that they were going to be filters uh, trying to promote the vaccines and suppress early treatments, suppress vaccine safety concerns. And this got out there. In fact, uh, the medical director of YouTube, YouTube has a physician medical director, got out there and supported it. So listen, you know, we're only going to promote the vaccines and we are going to suppress information on early. It was, it was overt. It was in the open. There were public statements made about this. Spotify is kind of late to the game. And I'm, I'm joking because I, I assume they don't have doctors. Maybe they do. Spotify wasn't in that game. That's right, I know. the whole thing, uh, and they've uh, been sucked into that game. Uh, uh, I know, it, it, but, but, but the point is, I don't think any of them have continuing medical education you know, competencies. Uh, they don't offer continuing. They, they don't offer accreditation. If, you know, if YouTube said you want to put a medical video, but it has to go through the accreditation process, like we would for anything else, we'd say fine. But th because they're not doing this on the up and up, this basically looks like biased censorship in order to promote some type of goal, and that basically fits the definition of propaganda. That things are they're they're using their platforms to propagandize. Spotify interestingly came into it, but I'm just telling your audience that uh, even if they're just a common carrier, if a concern was raised, Christina, a reasonable business thing to do would be to pick up the phone and call. And I am telling you, they didn't pick up the phone and call. And they, so they didn't do a reasonable thing on a concern from a big client. If Neil Young is a big client and they got a concern, you'd think as a reasonable business, a common carrier business, they would pick up the phone and call and they certainly didn't do it. Here's what I'm, I'm trying to put across here is that Facebook, YouTube, they were on board with the official source program from day one and they have been censoring face, you know, they have been censoring everybody 
LinkedIn has gotten in on the game. Okay. This was all, this is all known. Okay. Spotify was not part of that at all. Spotify is now being dragged into it. And so what Spotify is doing is they're just saying, uh, uh, okay, here, here, uh, here's the COVID hub. And it's all these official sources with their, you know, with their guests who say that all vaccines are great or whatever, you know, I'm, I'm hyperbolizing here, but you, you, you know what I'm saying? So Spotify was like a deer in the headlight when they lost Neil Young, I'm sure he just like, Oh, ho hum. Cause Neil Young's, you know, downloads are nothing compared to Joe Rogan. But then, <laughs> you know, he, I'm, I'm not kidding. He probably said, ah, okay. But then all of a sudden it became Neil Young built, built the bad wagon and people, other people started. So now he was like, okay, I gotta, I gotta do so. And then of course, you know, I'm sure it didn't help that Harry and Megan, you know, cause you know, Spotify has paid them 25 million bucks to, to do a podcast. And uh, so, you know, all of a sudden it became a bigger deal when bigger, more influential people got on the bandwagon. And, and to me, that's one of the most interesting parts about this. Like Harry and Meghan, you know, they could call you. You know, they could call you. They've got people. Their people could talk to your people. Or even- Listen, I'm, wi I'm wide open. My, my email and cell, cell phone is all over the internet. Yeah. And uh, believe me, you know, it, when Eric Clapton wanted to get a hold of me, it wasn't too hard. Uh, when uh, you listen, there have been lots of uh, famous people that have gotten a hold of me. Um, it's not foreign to me. And I'm happy to talk to him. When Jen Psaki in a press conference says that Joe Rogan and Spotify should do censoring, you know, I tweeted out. I said, listen, I'd love to go over with the president and Jen Psaki, bring the Surgeon General, and we'll go over the papers together. There's about a thousand papers on vaccine injury. It'll take about a day. We can organize it into cardiac injury, blood clots. We can go over it together. And, and, and you, they can let us know what information they would want to censor. Anybody who wants to censor information is going to have to tell us what information because it continues. And Spotify is a platform, but so is the iHeart platform. And so is the Apple podcast platform. There are so many podcasts uh, you know, in so many different, you know, music purveyors of music, I think we're down to, are they common carriers or are they going to be curators? And do you really want to get into that? And well, uh, I guess what I'm saying is Spotify did not want to be a curator, was absolutely not a curator like the, like Facebook and, and the others were right out YouTube. I mean, YouTube just, you know, right. Out, I, when I started interviewing you, I, I could I couldn't put my interviews with you on on YouTube, you know, no way. I, I remember that that was early on, and unfortunately, there have been so many young podcasters have been uh, demonetized when we when we go over the data together when they talk to me. I, I'm one of the few I think guests who really I'm so tight on citing the data. I mean, it's just you can't get through an interview without me just nailing the first author and the and the publication content, um, and it's occurred time and time again yet people still want to talk to me because you have the information and and this is the thing because i as a as a censored journalist i have been for years on different stories uh when and that's why i you know, i wanted to discuss these these fact checkers is because what happens is people come out and they attack you with these fact check now they this is this is so interesting now that they've come out with these 
fact-checking groups and so on and so forth. And it's so interesting because you can tell from the way their things are quote fact-checked, basically they say, he says X, Y, Z, false, it's not true. But Christina, one of the things that we do is just a tradition on the interviews uh, and it comes up, you know, I'm an expert in court. You know, I give presentations at medical sites. The first thing we do is a pretty detailed credential review. So my credentials <coughs> are reviewed to be fair to the audience. And they are extensive. Yes, yes. And one of the things that the fact checkers do is no credentials review. None. And so yeah, that's one of the things we said, you know, should we really respond to this? where there's, and in fact, you know, Joe Rogan reached back to me, he says, well, why can't we get, get a debate? I said, listen, if we can get somebody who is, you know, roughly, you know, equivalent, um, equivalent uh, credentials, then we can have a discussion. I, I'm not going to debate this with a high school kid or right. with, a, with a PhD. It's just not going to happen. So, um, uh, so you know, that, that's the thing about it. So if, if, if there is a fact checker who honestly has 600 publications in the peer-reviewed literature, then, then let's, let's talk about it. If, if it's not, then it's just, I, I think at this point in time, since they don't reach out to me, since there's no courtesy calls or anything, I, I, I'd say just let it go. There's a guy that you talked about towards the end of the show who's offering $2 million to- Yeah, that's Steve Kirsch. You should interview him. He actually made a presentation on the steps at Lincoln Memorial. He got a few words in at U.S. Senate testimony. It, yeah, still hasn't, yeah. it still hasn't happened. He's called medical schools. He's called institutions, the government agencies. Please, can anybody sit at the table and defend, defend vaccine safety and efficacy? I'll give you $2 million. No one will show. Isn't that interesting? It's the same reason why people don't show when invited to the Senate. It's the same reason why the fact checkers don't show their credentials. It's, this is all the same, Christina. Same reason why Spotify never gave a courtesy call. Do you see what I mean? It's all the same. But these people have to be sussed out, Peter. It, this, can't keep, this can't keep going on. They have to be sussed out at some well, point. It, it's becoming, they have to be confronted. It, 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 it's becoming clear that people are seeking the truth. And in the end, that process will be the ultimate um, you know, writing of the ship here. And, uh, you, you know, th there was, put it this way, uh, in Washington, D.C., maybe there was 30 to 35,000 people who showed up to, um, you know, hear words about medical freedom, uh, about vaccine safety and efficacy. There wasn't the counter group, a, 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 a group that show up and say, these vaccines are so good for us. They're making us healthy. We want to make our voice known. There is no, there, there, none of those people showed up. Do, do you see what I mean? They didn't show know, up at the rally. I, they didn't show up at the Senate. Uh, they, they don't show up. Uh, they don't show up anywhere.